the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. According to today's guest, Dr. Chatterjee, half of all American adults suffer with a chronic disease, with one in four people suffering from two or more. Despite the epidemic rates of lifestyle diseases, we are confused about what we can do to protect ourselves and live long, healthy lives. Dr. Chatterjee joins us today to discuss his plan for a life free of disease. Dr. Chatterjee is a practicing physician and star of the BBC One TV show, Doctor in the House. He is a member of the Royal Colleges of Physicians and the Institute of Functional Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Chatterjee. Thank you so much for joining us. Joan, it's a real pleasure to be on your show. So, Doctor, what conditions would fall under the category of lifestyle diseases? Joan, I think that's a great question. I think most people associate lifestyle-driven diseases with things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. But what we're learning more and more is that so many of the different conditions we see whether it's mental health problems like depression and anxiety, whether it's autoimmune problems, whether it's gut problems, headaches, migraines, basically the bulk of what I see as a practicing medical doctor in some way is related to our collective modern lifestyles. Now, I've got to be careful. What I'm not saying is that people are doing it to themselves. I'm just saying that in the 21st century, there is an increasing... that, you know, there's increasing awareness that actually there's a, of that mismatch between our genetic heritage and our modern environment. And that mismatch is at the heart of many of the different diseases and complaints that we're now suffering from. So, Doctor, with the understanding that there's always a place for medication, and, and what I'm about to say does not in any way say people should not be taking meds, but these are conditions for which most people take medication. These are conditions that we have more power over than we believe we do. Is that true? Absolutely. Look, I prescribe pharmaceutical medication, you know, pretty much every day as a doctor, you know. I'm not saying that there is no need for that. What I am saying is that we are over-prescribing pharmaceutical medication and we're not giving a lot of our patients the right choices, the right options so that they can actually choose to make some changes in their lifestyle if they wish. Now, you mentioned in the intro that I have um, got my own television series called Doctor in the House, which is a BBC show that was showed in the UK but also has gone around the country, uh, sorry, it's got around the world what I managed to show in this documentary series is that for a whole variety of different conditions, whether it's type 2 diabetes, whether it's panic attacks, anxiety, fibromyalgia, insomnia, gut problems, all kinds of different conditions, that by making small changes to four key areas of our lifestyle, we can certainly improve people's health. And in some cases, we managed to reverse their condition. Like I managed to demonstrate that type 2 diabetes can be reversed sometimes within 30 days by making those lifestyle changes. I also showed that actually a condition such as fibromyalgia, which had been under doctors for years, and this lady I saw was on 20 different pills 
every single day. Again, within six weeks, she was pain-free. And a few months later, instead of taking 20 pills a day, she's only taking two pills a day. So, you know, I'm very passionate that actually there is so much that we can do with our lifestyle. But as you have already highlighted, one of the problems is that health has become overcomplicated. And so what I try and do in my approach, I actually simplify health down to four key areas. And these areas are what I call the pillars of health, the four pillars of health that we've got some degree of control over that has the most impact on the way that we feel. Food and movement, which everyone has been talking about for years, but also sleep and relaxation. And I think those final two pillars are pillars that people very much undervalue, both doctors and the public alike. And I, I sort of walk people through in the book of the variety of changes you can make in these areas and that the, the amount of different conditions that can start to get better. Doctor, let's look at these four areas for a moment and talk briefly about each. So relaxation, what strategies do you believe make the most difference? Joan, we're living in a busy, busy world. I mean, many of us are stressed out from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed. You know, we wake up, we look at our phones, uh, we've got a, a barrage of noise coming in, emails, tweets, Facebook messages, Instagram posts. And for many of us, that, that continues all day. And we are just busy. And actually, this is having a negative impact on our health because when we're this busy and this stressed out, what happens is we raise levels of stress hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline in our body, and they can have quite a negative impact on many different systems in the body, including our ability to lose weight. So, so many patients I see that actually it's not diet and movement they need. What they need is to manage their stress levels because when we're chronically stressed, you know, our body feels like it's under attack and, and it comes up with a strategy to deal with that. And one of the strategies is it will hold on to weight. So, you know, what are some of my top strategies to help us de-stress? And they sound rather simple. One of them is 15 minutes of me time every day. So this is something that you do by yourself. You do it because you enjoy it and you do it without a screen. And this can be something as simple as just enjoying a cup of coffee. But the goal is not to be scrolling your screen, looking at your emails and your Facebook at the same time. So that's one strategy I, I, I sort of recommend. The other strategy I, I recommend is something called a practice, a daily practice of stillness. So, you know, the, the, the words meditation and mindfulness are all the rage these days. And I think, you know, I'm a huge fan of both of them, but sometimes those terms can confuse people. Basically, what we're talking about is, is a practice every day where you have a little bit of stillness. That can be meditation, and there are some great apps. You know, my personal favorite is the Calm app, uh, but there are so many other ones out there for, that people can choose from. Um, but you know what? Listening to music can be a meditation. You know, even just sitting there with your eyes closed for 10 minutes, listening to your favorite bit of music, you know, if you lose yourself in the music, that can be a meditation as long as you're not doing something else at the same time, like going through your emails, you know, like, like surfing, surfing the net. So th those are two strategies that I outline. And, and I guess a third one is this whole idea of a screen-free Sabbath, the whole idea, can we work towards one full day a week where we don't go on screens? And I, and I appreciate many people will be listening to this and going, mm -hmm. I said, there's no way I can do that. And, and I, I take a very practical approach I say, you know what, if one day is too much, try one hour, try two hours, just see what happens. And I walk people through a practical strategy uh, day by day of how they can get to that stage. And one of the top tips for technology is to take notifications off your phone. You don't need to know every time someone likes your latest social media post or, you know, the, the, the next time you get a junk email from someone, you know, we need to use technology in a way that we're in control and that technology doesn't control us. You know, I am not anti-tech. I'm a huge fan. But we've got to start putting in some practices in place where we're in charge. And I think taking notifications off your phone is a big one. So that's really, in a nutshell, uh, relaxation. In, in the book, there are plenty more uh, tips and strategies that I've basically learned from my patients. You know, this book is full of things that it's not what I say is going to work. It's what patients over the last 10, 15 years have told me works in their busy lives. 
Doctor, how much exercise should we be getting and what kind do you recommend? We all need to move more. We know that as a society we're not moving enough. What do I recommend? So I think it's important to sort of mention here before we go in deep onto movement and exercise is that, you know, my approach is not about prescribing someone exactly what they should be doing. You know, I very much prefer a partnership with my readers, a partnership with my patients and allow them to make those decisions. So, you know, these four pillars that I talk about, in each pillar there are five chapters. Each chapter is a recommendation. And, and I say, look, guys, you're never going to do all 20 of the recommendations. I wouldn't expect anyone to. What I'd like people to do is pick two or three in each pillar and try and implement those strategies into their everyday life. And that's genuinely what I find with my patients. They need to do maybe two or three in each pillar. It's not about the perfect diet. It's not about the perfect exercise and gym routine. You don't need perfection. You just need balance. So when it comes to movement and exercise, my recommendations are, are pretty simple, really. You know, what the first one is um, to sit less and walk more. And I go through some simple strategies as to how you can do that. Many of my patients love the idea of having a fitness tracker and trying to get that 10,000 steps a day. Now, it's, uh, it's important to say there's no magic uh, about, about 10,000, right? It's not as if 10,000 is significantly better than 9,500 or, or better than 11,000. It's just quite a good barometer that we can use to get a little bit more active. But many of my patients also don't like fitness trackers, and that's fine as well. There are many other strategies that people can use. One thing I think I'm going to highlight, because it's impossible in this interview to go through all of the strategies, is strength training. Now, strength training is incredibly undervalued in society. You know, we... We, we, we don't re realize the implications of that. Once we go past 30, the age of 30, we can lose 3 to 5% of our lean muscle mass every 10 years. And above the age of 50, that can go to about 3% each year. Now, you might be wondering why does that matter? Well, the amount of lean muscle mass you have is the strongest predictor of how well you are going to be as you age. It's really that important. And so arguably, we should be prioritizing muscle mass and strength training in older individuals more than in younger individuals. At the moment, we associate going to the gym with teenagers and people in their 20s trying to look good. But actually, it's, it's more important as we get older. And, and in my book, I talk about something called a five-minute kitchen workout, which is a workout that anybody can do because it can be modified to all ability levels. You don't need any equipment. You don't need to buy anything. You don't need to go to a gym. You don't even need to change your clothes. And, it, and it's a way that I keep fit when I'm on the roads. And I can tell you, I've got patients ranging from 20 years old to 70 years old who are doing this five-minute strength workout. And, and it's incredible. By, by lowering the bar, by, by saying to my patients, hey, look, if you can't get to a gym, that's fine. Start off. Give me five minutes twice a week. You know what happens? They go away, they're normally a little bit skeptical, but they start doing it for five minutes twice a week. And within a month, they've increased it to 10 or 15 minutes, five or six days a week, because I've made it simple and I've made it accessible for them. So I think strength training is something I'm really, really passionate about. Doctor, so many of us are making ourselves crazy following every fad diet that comes out. And you know, we're, we're losing weight, we're gaining weight, we just when we think we have it figured out, we're given new information saying don't eat that, eat this. So if you could sum it up, how do we find that balance in what we eat? What should we be doing every day to maximize our health through food? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. It's a problem in the U.S., it's a problem in the U.K. People are so confused. But you know what? The, the, the principles of healthy eating haven't really changed in a number of years. And I try and sort of walk people through them in my approach. And so I'd say the first one is to denormalize sugar. Okay, this is not about saying you're never going to eat sugar again. Frankly, we're hardwired to crave sugar. And in the modern living environment, we're always going to be exposed to it. So at some point, we're always going to crack. You know, I would say, look, 
I don't mind if people have a sugary treat now and again, but they should know when they're eating sugar. We shouldn't kid ourselves that we're not having sugar in our breakfast cereal, in our sandwich at lunch, and in our pasta and ready-made sauce for dinner. You know, if you start looking at those labels, you'll find pretty soon that actually there's a ton of sugar in that. So, you know, my a big approach with sugar is not to demonize it, but, but to denormalize it. The other approach I'm sort of quite keen on is the idea of can you eat five vegetables every single day and ideally make them different colors? And the way I prioritize that with people is give them a rainbow chart. So I've got that in my book. I give that to patients in my practice. Um, and people love it because it, it gamifies health. And if any of your listeners have actually got children like I do, it's the best way of getting your children to eat more vegetables is by gamifying it and, and having this rainbow chart. So you can look at all healthy populations around the world. And one of the consistent things is they eat minimal sugar. They do eat sugar, actually, but they eat minimal sugar. They eat plenty of brightly colored vegetables every day. And I think the other big one is to unprocessed your diet. We know that minimally processed food is associated with better health outcomes. You can look at all these populations, these blue zones around the world, where people live to a ripe old age in really good health. And you know what, their diet is different. Some are eating more fat, some are eating more carbs. But you know what they're all doing? It's minimally processed food. And, you know, on a side note, one of the reasons I think that low-carbohydrate diets are working so well for so many people in the West are because the bulk of the refined and processed junk that we're eating is highly refined and processed carbs. So actually, just by cutting those highly processed foods out, we're automatically improving the health of our diets because it's that kind of diet that actually encourages really good growth of what we call gut bugs, so these trillions of bugs that live inside us, and that can impact your mood, that can impact your weight, your risk of type 2 diabetes, your risk of getting things like Alzheimer's disease, and a whole host of other things. So those are some sort of basic principles. But, you know, we're always so focused on what we should eat, we often don't think about when we should eat. And one of the strategies I talk about is can you eat all of your food in a 12-hour eating window? So, you know, that might be you have your breakfast at 7 a.m. and you've finished eating your dinner by 7 p.m., for example, or 8 till 8 or 9 till 9. It really doesn't matter, but we know that there are some incredible benefits for the body when we restrict our eating to 12 hours. And I can tell you that pretty much every single one of my patients can do that. It often improves their digestion, improves their blood sugar levels, their weight, but it can also improve their sleep. So that's a strategy I'd encourage people to listen. If they've struggled to change what they eat, maybe they should start with changing when they eat. And finally, doctor, how many hours of sleep should we get per evening? You know what? The research is conflicting. I can't actually tell anyone what they should be getting per night in terms of hours. But what I can do, and this is the question I ask all of my patients, is do you wake up feeling refreshed? Because that's what sleep should be doing. Do you wake up with an alarm? Sorry, do you wake up without an alarm, give or take 30 minutes every day? Because that gives me an idea of your body's natural circadian rhythm. And do you fall asleep within about 30 minutes of trying? And I go through this um, rate questionnaire with my patients that I detail out on the book so that people can assess their own sleep health. And that gives me a great snapshot of what people's sleep quality is like. See, you might be able to sleep for six hours a night and actually wake up feeling refreshed. And I would say that's okay for you. But some other people need eight hours a night. So, you know, I think having a number there can actually be a little bit off-putting for some people. But I can tell you this, right? We are living in a sleep deprivation epidemic. There's no question. And in the short term, a lack of sleep affects our energy, our mood, our relationships with our partner, our family members, our work colleagues as well as actually our ability to make other good, healthy lifestyle choices. But in the long term, sleep deprivation is associated with pretty much every single chronic condition we have, whether it be obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's. And we're not talking about it. We're always talking about food and movements. And when we're missing a big piece of the puzzle, which is sleep, the vast majority of people who are struggling with their sleep are doing something in their daily lifestyle that they don't realize 
is negatively impacting their ability to sleep in the evening. You know, in very rare cases, is it what we call a primary sleep disorder, like sleep apnea? In most cases, it's to do with things that they're doing in the day. That could be caffeine, it could be alcohol, it could be that they're on screens before bed, uh, it could be that they go through their bank statements every evening so they can't switch off, it could be that they're doing their work emails in bed. But one that often people don't think about is one of my recommendations, which is embrace morning light. Now, when people think about sleep, they're always thinking about what can I do in the evening before I go to bed? You know, what, what, what can I do to relax? But actually, we know that actually that's not the whole story. See, we've evolved as humans to have a big differential between our maximum life exposure and our minimum life exposure. So if, if a dark room, let's say a completely pitch black room, was zero lux and lux is a unit of light, okay? You go outside on a sunny day, you get exposed to about 30,000 lux, okay? So that's a big difference. You go outside on a cloudy day, you're getting maybe 10 to 15,000 lux. You go into a brightly lit office environment, the maximum you're gonna get is about five or 600 lux, okay? So in the modern world, when we're spending a lot of our time indoors, we're not getting that differential. And I've got so many of my patients who, by having a 20-minute walk outside every day or even at lunchtime, okay, that is all they need to do to improve the sleep quality at night because it helps them set their body's natural daily circadian rhythm. The book is How to Make Disease Disappear. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Chatterjee and his work, you can visit drchatterjee.com. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Lisa Luckett, a life coach, speaker, and CEO of Cosmina Enlightened Living, a brand of kindness. Lisa is the author of the book, The Light in 9-11, Shocked by Kindness, Healed by Love. She's here today to discuss navigating fear. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Joan. Thanks so much for having me. So, Lisa, we've been living through extraordinary times for just about a year now. And so now, a year later, looking back, what do you believe is one of the biggest impacts these changes have had on us? So a year ago, we were just moving into our first experience of COVID, and we were shocked, right? We were caught completely off guard. All of a sudden, half the country was put into lockdown. We had to learn to wear masks. We had to remember them when we went to the grocery store. And um, now we have a choice now in how we're going to go forward because the fear factor very often is linked to uncertainty, unknowing, right? That's where we are. We're living right now amidst, we're kind of in the stew, if you will, of the experience. We don't know what the insights will be looking back. But we can say now with confidence, we know a lot more about the virus. We know a lot more about how to, how to protect ourselves. The question really is, what are we going to do with that? Because it's another block of time. And the fear, fear comes, you know, that it's, it's idle mind. It's the idle mind is the devil's workshop, I think was always said. We don't have enough going on right now. We're dealing with tedium. We're dealing with boredom. And we're dealing with the unknown. And the world clearly is, is in a little chaos. So... Fear is screaming. And the best thing we can do about fear is stay in the moment. 
there are some very real fears. There are, you know, there's financial insecurity and people are losing jobs and we're afraid of getting sick and losing loved ones. So those are very real fears that are being experienced by people today. And then there are the fears that we imagine. All the things that we're afraid of might happen. How can we learn to distinguish between the two so that we don't get so caught up and stuck in fearing everything that may happen? So if you remember that fear is really conjured, right? There is true fear about what's happening now, and and we're just in such an unsettled time. But fear is really conjured in the mind. It isn't real. And fear comes from thoughts. And thoughts are things we we don't actually have to attach to. So the question is, the prompt is really, is this thought real? Is this thought true right now? Am I sick right now? Is this person dying right now? Are these thoughts real or are we allowing them to take over? Because thoughts of the future are going to bring anxiety while thoughts of the past will bring regret. So really the only choice we have is to detach if we can from that thinking and evaluate it and really assess whether it's true or it's real. So in addition to detaching from the thinking, is there anything else we can do to mitigate fear? I think a lot of it's about letting go. You know, that we need to just understand that that we're holding on so tightly to control of things that are uncontrollable. And if you can shift your mind and shift your, your, take a breath and just say, wait a minute, I can't control what's happening in Washington. I can't control what's happening in the world. I can control what's happening right here in my world, in my moment. And let go. We can give ourselves permission to let go and trust and allow, because the truth is we think all of these horrible possible things, but how many of them really do come true? That's something, you know, I always say that to people because we live with all the fears of what may be. And if you really stop and think about it, pretty much everything we fear never materializes. That's right. That's right. There's a great Mark Twain quote that that says, basically, I've had some thoughts. I've had some terrible thoughts in my life, some of which actually happened. (laughs) You know, they didn't, they were horrible, terrible, but most of them don't happen. And we get ourselves pretty twisted up. And part of the emotional intelligence about coaching and about taking a proactive step forward into getting some control back in your life is to do something like hire a coach. Let's look at things. What is that dream you have? What could you do? One step you could take today to make that dream happen. Could you watch a YouTube? Could you take an online class? Could you take, read a book? You know, who can you call today that's going to be a positive resource? You know, there's so many proactive ways. Most of the things about fear is, is what I call healthy distraction. So you, you distract yourself out of your fear because by knitting, which is tactile touch, which is going to calm your central nervous system, any kind of handcraft, patting a dog. If you'll notice that the pet therapies that have come out of COVID, it's about that, that, that tactile touch and that warmth of an animal. You know, those things are real and they do truly quell fear. Music is amazing. Anytime you tap into your senses, your taste, touch, sight, smell, or sound, you are going to distract into your non-logical brain or into your intuitive, creative brain. And that's where the quiet can be found because you can distract yourself through something that isn't your thinking, your logic, your reason, because we're just filling of what is right now an enormous void of information and time. And, you know, when life gets back into being busy, this won't be as much of a problem. But right now it really is rearing its ugly head because we do have this idleness. Lisa, thank you so much for spending this time with us. If you would like to learn more about Lisa or her book or her work, you can visit her website, lisaluckett.com. Or as always, to hear more from Lisa, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Lisa. Again, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, Joan. We'll be right back. What brings you meaning? Have you ever asked yourself, who am I? Why am I here? Or what do I want? These questions are a search for meaning or purpose in life. Taking the time to ponder these questions are so important to create a balanced, purposeful, and rewarding life. Hi, I'm Lori Gardner, registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. I am the CEO and founder of HealthLink Advocates, a firm dedicated to assisting people navigate our very complex and confusing healthcare system. We also provide coaching to individuals that want to improve their health and well-being. In contemplating on what is truly meaningful, you can discover that experiencing and expressing love are central to fulfillment 
moment in life. The challenge is to transform the fear that is so rampant in our culture and often expressed as anger or impatience into love. This can be a lifelong project which propels meaning and direction into every moment of life. Today, we are bombarded with messages from a multitude of often conflicting directions telling us how to live our lives. Divorced from our own inner voice, our own wisdom, we look to external authorities to comprehend and assign meaning to our lives. Yet ultimately, each of us individually is our sole and final authority on answering those questions that have formed the basis of philosophy throughout the ages. Many people today are seeking to connect with their own inner authority. We can cultivate our ability to listen by simply taking time alone to do something that brings us closer to nature and to our own inner spirit. Keep an open heart and mind, experiment, and you will find what works for you. If you need a health and wellness coach to partner with you, please contact us at healthlinkadvocates.com. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Clelia Pergola, is the Chief Operating Officer of the New Jersey Elder Law Center at Goldberg Law Group. In that role, it is her mission to support caregivers in order to help them rise above the frustrating and emotional responsibilities they have in their families. She is here today to discuss the challenges caregivers face. Welcome, Clelia. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So, Clelia, you advocate for caregivers and you work with people who are fulfilling that role. And I know that you've had personal experience as a caregiver. Can you share a little bit about that experience with us? And what were some of your biggest challenges as a caregiver? Oh, well, I'll, I'll share one story with you. I'm, I'm not exactly proud of it, but uh, it's important that I, I, I come to terms with what happened. And so I, I haven't shared this much with, with anyone uh, but I will share it with you and, and the listeners. I came to a point t- towards the end of the six years of caring for my grandmother that uh, I became very frustrated and uh, I was getting to a point where I felt like nobody, nobody understood, uh, you know, what I was going through. And I took that out on sometimes on, on professionals. So I got a call one day it was now the fourth week in a row that I've gotten this call, and I got a call from my uh, from the the police station, and they were at my grandmother's house, and she was on the floor, and she fell, and luckily she didn't break anything, but she she had dementia, so um, she she also has a language barrier. She's Italian, so she was very shy. She was at the point of, of being mute, she didn't speak much. And I asked the policeman if I can talk to my grandmother and I talked to her and I made sure that she was okay. I told her that I would come and get her. And the policeman got back on the phone and I said to to him, I knew how it went. Normally she would go to the hospital. They would check her. And I told him, don't bring her to the hospital. I said, she's, she's frightened. She's fine. And he's like, well, she's not responding to me. I go, she has a language barrier and she has dementia, but I'm telling you she's fine. She answered me and he said, okay. So I was at a meeting. I rushed out of the meeting, went there, called my husband, told him to, you know, spend for himself and, and the kids. And I went to her house. And when I got there, she wasn't there. And I immediately started going to the hospital. I called the police station to double check. And I yelled at the cop that was on the phone. And I said, I told you not to bring her. And I, uh, I, I actually left out when the EMT was there as well. And I had told them not to bring her there as well. And so when I went to the hospital, I rushed in. I, I, you know, told them that I was there for my grandmother. They let me in the back. And when I got into the emergency room in the back, there was, you know, nurses and doctors and everybody kind of around, you can imagine. And I, I saw a nurse and I said, 
I need to know where Lydia Barone is. And they said, I, I heard a voice say, oh, Barone, we just brought her in. And it was the EMT. And I flipped. Joan, it was not a proud moment, but I yelled at these poor EMT uh, workers. And I was like, don't talk to me. I said, you have no idea what you just did to her. She is not a stray dog that you just drop off somewhere. You should be ashamed of yourself and you shouldn't be in this position to bring people to the hospital. And I went and I saw, I, they brought me to my grandmother and, and she was, she was this, you know, scared little, you know, mouse in the corner and um, very nervous on, you know, why am I back in the hospital? And, you know, she has PTSD from all of, you know, the situations that, that had brought her there in the past. And um, I probably ruined the EMT's day that day. And I, and I, and I think that caregivers sometimes um, get a bad rap because they're just so frustrated with the situation. And we flip out on people that are trying to help. And it's just a difficult, difficult situation. And, and all they want is to just be understood. But I think you're bringing up a, a wonderful point, Claudia, because it is a frustrating job because you have to advocate for someone that you love. You have to be that person's eyes and ears, and in some cases, voice. So it can become very frustrating in that role. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, you try to do the best job possible. And like I've said, and I say all the time is you're, you're constantly fighting with the decisions that you are making and have made. You're constantly replaying situations. And it's kind of like breaking up with an ex-boyfriend and then everybody telling you that he was cheating on you. And you're just like, I don't understand. How come I didn't see that? And you're, you constantly replay things in your mind. And that's, what you do as a caregiver, you're constantly like, well, why didn't I do this? And why didn't I see that? And you have a lot of self-blame. And what do you say to that, Claudia? Because I know I went through the same thing. I was the caregiver for my parents. And, and after they each passed away, I remember doing that and saying, if only I had seen this or had been there, maybe it would have had a different outcome or if we went to a different doctor. What do you say to that? What advice do you offer to all of us so that we stop blaming and second guessing? Joan, I'll ask you when now that you look back at your situation, do you think that if you changed, you know, one or two things that it would have really changed the trajectory of what Mm -hmm. happened? No, not at all. Right. It defines the individual, like it defines your mom and dad and their story. And they taught you something through that. So it's like parenting. It's sometimes you just have to watch your little one fall and you know that they're going to fall, but you kind of just have to step back and, and watch it happen. And sometimes our instincts know when we take a look back at certain situations, but if we were to to change one or two things, first off, we can't change everything, right? Because then it, it, that's not the story that you can't, you just can't do that. Everything would, everything would change in life. And the one or two things really aren't going to change much. So you, you just have to know that you did it out of love. And if that is the bottom line, then you did the right thing. Claudia, you know, with all that we've been experiencing with COVID and and a lot of the restrictions that are taking place, I know that resources have been scaled back or in some cases eliminated. I have a friend who cares for her 100-year-old father, and he used to go to places like medical daycare, and there were programs that kept him active and out of the house. Since COVID hit, all of those programs are gone, and she's now with him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So what do you advise caregivers do so that they can stay emotionally and physically strong? I feel bad for, for your friend, um, but God bless a hundred years old. Uh, I, I would say take time for yourself. You will find me sometimes in my closet, just sitting on the floor and my children will come in 
And the first couple of times it was awkward and there, there'd be a lot of questions, but now they know if mommy's in the closet, I need them. I just need a couple minutes to myself. And it's amazing what five or 10 minutes of just clearing your mind will do. And it's not easy and it takes practice. And it's kind of just like a, a, a recharge and you, and, you, and you have to do that for yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of others. It's so important. And that's a great point because as you said, it you know people tend to think that self-care is selfish, but it's actually the opposite because like you said, if you don't take care of yourself, your well runs dry and you have nothing to give to another person. It's a long game. It's not a short game. You have to take it step by step and if you run yourself ragged like it's a crisis situation you're 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 not going to make good decisions you're going to burn out Paula, thank you so much for joining us and for shedding some light on what really is a growing problem in our society today if you would like to learn more about Clelia and her work, you can visit cleliapergola.com. Or as always, to hear more from Clelia, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Clelia. We'll be right back. Are you looking to start making smarter decisions with your money, but are unsure of what your first step should be? Hi, my name's Kay Toby, financial services professional with the Fortis Agency. I'm here to share some tips that I suggest to my own clients on how to start becoming more financially responsible. Number one, use a monthly budget sheet. Creating a budget sheet that lists your expenses each month will provide you with an idea of exactly what you're spending money on. This will help you realize where you may be able to cut back on costs that are not truly essential. Number two, map out your financial goals. Taking the time to figure out your goals for the short term, midterm, and long term will help you realize what vehicles you should be saving into. Consider including large financial decisions such as paying for a wedding, purchasing a home, and retirement. Number three, improve your credit score. Paying your credit card bill on time is crucial to raising your credit score and giving you more financial flexibility in the future. For more information on becoming financially responsible, send me an email at ktoby at theforestagency.com. Vibration is a force that can be felt, heard, and sometimes seen. Cymatics is the study of vibration made visible. It inspires art, philosophical discussion, and scientific inquiry. Hi, I'm Allison Ayati, owner of Awakened Sound Health. The field of cymatics merges the fields of sound, mathematics, and light through the presentation of stunning images created by tonal frequencies vibrating in the medium of water or sand. The tonal frequencies reveal themselves as perfectly symmetrical geometric patterns, each one uniquely different from the other. However, when a tone changes, there is a period of chaos when there is no form before the molecules of sand or water rearrange themselves into another unique geometric pattern. Do you ever feel like you go through periods of chaos when there are changes going on in your life, going from order and knowing through disorder and unknowing before you emerge into the newness of whatever change has taken place? When you go through change, it is possible to find moments of peace and order, even as you move through disorder and confusion. Sound therapy is one way to move through change with ease and grace by bringing you into a state of relaxation and meditation, signaling your body to release tension and your mind to ease into quietude. To learn more about sound therapy or to book an appointment, go to awakensoundhealth.com. Sound therapy is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. today to talk about ways that you can heal your thyroid naturally is Dr. Emily Lipinski, a doctor of naturopathic medicine and author of the book, Healing Your Thyroid Naturally. Welcome, Dr. Lipinski. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. Doctor, let's begin by talking about the scope of thyroid disorders. How prevalent are thyroid issues and who are most likely to suffer? They're becoming more and more prevalent. In fact, it's estimated that in North America now, about one in six women at some point in their life will develop some sort of thyroid dysfunction. And although thyroid disease does affect men, it's definitely more prevalent in women. So you're saying that it's becoming more and more of a problem. What are some of the major causes? Well, this is a really interesting question because a lot of people, the old way of thinking was that as uh, we age, specifically as women age, the thyroid gland, it's, an, it's a hormone gland in the body located in the neck, that it just naturally stopped working as well. However, we know now that about 90% of the reason why people are developing hypothyroidism, slow-functioning thyroid uh, function, is because of autoimmune disease. So when we're looking at the root cause of why, it's really because of this autoimmune disorder that's happening in people's bodies. And many people aren't even aware of it. Is that occurring because of our lifestyle? Yes, autoimmune disease, um, there's kind of three factors we need to look at. First, there needs to be some sort of genetic link. We can't do anything about that. Some people know they have genetics to develop autoimmune. Some people don't. Um, so if you have an, a father or a mother or aunt or uncle with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or other forms of autoimmune disease, you're definitely at increased risk. Second is kind of the triggers to develop an autoimmune condition. And these can be a, a Western um, diet, refined foods, lots of fats and sugars, packaged foods, um, exposure to toxins, uh, long-term use of certain medications like Advil uh, and the birth control pill can also be a trigger for autoimmune. And then the final one is something called leaky gut or interstitial um, permeability, intestinal permeability. And that is some people know they have leaky gut, some people don't. What are signs that something might be wrong? So with the thyroid gland specifically, I'd say some of the first things you want to be looking out for is that key symptom of inability to, to lose weight. The thyroid gland is the master uh, gland of your metabolism. So it keeps your meta metabolic rate high and it also keeps your bowels moving. So having sluggish bowels, not being able to go to the bathroom as much as you want, feeling like you're gaining more and more weight despite not any big changes in diet or exercise or trying to change diet and exercise and no budge with the weight. That's one of the key symptoms. And then you also want to be looking for feeling cold all the time, um, dry hair, skin and nails, hair falling out, um, and irritability, depression, and anxiety can also be part of thyroid disease. Anyone who gets a routine annual physical and they do blood work, there's usually a thyroid panel that's done. Is that sufficient in diagnosing the problem? That's a great question, Joan. So when we look for thyroid disease on blood work, we're looking for something called TSH. That's thyroid-stimulating hormone. That's a hormone that's produced by the pineal gland, the gland in your brain, and that should speak to your thyroid gland. At kind of, I, I tell my patients kind of like a whisper. It should say, keep going, you're doing a good job. When that happens, the range of TSH is around 0 0.5 to 2, maybe 2.5. Um, <clears throat> anything above 2.5, in my opinion, is that something might be starting to be a little bit off with your thyroid gland. The problem with that, though, is many labs, their cutoff for TSH is around somewhere between four to six. And classic uh, thought in the medical system is that there's really nothing wrong with a thyroid gland until TSH goes to 10. So that's the first issue. A lot of women I've seen have had a TSH in the threes, fours, fives, sixes, but no one's done anything about it because they think it's not, it hasn't gotten high enough. To do something about it. The second issue is that the TSH doesn't show anything about the autoimmune disorder. And again, 90% of people that have hypothyroidism are having an autoimmune condition going on in the body. And these antibodies that attack the thyroid gland can be tested in the blood, but aren't often tested in conventional medicine in North America. So these two antibodies that are primarily tested in my practice are called TPO and TGAB. And you can have those antibodies checked. You can ask your doctor to run those for you. If your doctor won't run them for you, you can find another 
practitioner, be it naturopathic, functional medicine doctor, another medical doctor that will run these antibodies. Because if you do have the antibodies, there's a lot that you can do to reduce those antibodies in your body and help your thyroid gland function a little bit more optimally. If it's determined that there is a problem, is medication always the the best course of treatment? And once you're on these meds, is it forever? Or is there something that we can do naturally to heal this? It really depends how long the thyroid disease um, has been at play and if you already are on medication. So that's the, one of the important points about the, looking at these antibodies. So normally we know that the antibodies become elevated in someone's blood about five years before their TSH really goes, the switches very, very high. So if you catch the antibodies early and the TSH is still within the normal range, that is where healing the thyroid naturally really shines. There's so much we can do naturally to reduce those antibodies and really, in my opinion, prevent the use of medication. If the TSH is slightly high um, and you do do things naturally, there also may be a reduced need for medication as well. If your TSH is really high and you've been dealing with thyroid disease for a very long time, natural remedies are absolutely still going to have a place. However, you may need medication. Using natural remedies and diet and lifestyle can still be powerful because it can reduce how much medication you might need. Um, and you might be able to have get away with a lower dose of medication because you're doing these other things naturally to improve thyroid function. The book is Healing Your Thyroid Naturally by Dr. Emily Lipinski. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.